I think we're ready for our question and answer session. Let me find it. Most of them here. You guys had a lot of questions. Yes, there were a lot of questions. We'll see if we get through them all. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Gretchen, I loved your definition of repentance. Could you go over that again? Your definition made it so very clear that we are turning all over to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and forsaking ourselves, rather than from bad to good deeds. Yeah, this, um, this definition of repentance I actually found in the 95 Theses that started off the Protestant Reformation. Um, so it was a difference between a, a Catholic definition and a, a Protestant definition. So the first one of those is, um, the first of the 95 Theses is basically the whole Christian life is one of repentance. And so it's not something you do once, it's something that you're doing daily. And um, he goes in to explain that it's not something that we earn, it's not something you have to purchase an indulgence for, that's something we have in Christ. And then in, he got a lot of questions on that, Martin Luther did. And so in 1518, um, before he left the Catholic Church, he wrote something called the Heidel Heidelberg Disputations. And um, so basically, that was mind-blowing to me because I know when we repent, good works come out of that because it's important to understand that sin is not just something we do, it is something we are captive to, like we are trapped in it. And so when we turn to Christ, he, he not only, um, there's, a, there's several terms for this, but in one of the hymns, it's called the double cure, where he, he pays for our sin, but he also sets us free from sin. That's what he does. And so repentance, obviously, if you're set free from sin, you are set free so that you can actually do good works. So the Heidelberg Disputations talk about that a little bit of this idea of we are always, our good works, no matter how good they are, they're still tainted. No matter how much we try, they are still not meeting God's law. So when we repent, we're not just repenting of our bad works, we're repenting of thinking that our good works are enough. We're repenting from all of our works. And then we're turning to the works of Christ and he frees us from sin so that we can do good works. So that's where it gets confusing where a lot of people think, okay, gotta repent from our sins so we can do this. We're, we're actually repenting. When we say repent from our sin, we have a really hard time believing that our good works might have some bad motives in them, or they might have too much pride, or they might do any of those things. And so we're repenting of our works so that we can take on the works of Christ, so that we can do the good works that only happen through Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. Okay. How can the church best provide avenues for women to build spiritual relationships outside of Sunday morning services? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky thing that my, my church is working on right now. I'm working with my pastor on this, this very thing. 
And I've worked with a lot of churches. I, um, I know this was another one that you showed me, so hopefully I'm not crossing over okay. a little bit. But um, before I wrote Ragged, um, I, I wrote an online course called Gospel Mentoring. It's still available online for free. Um, so gospelmentoring.com. But I really saw this lack of um, really gospel-infused relationships. A lot of times at, at women's events or women's retreats, we talk about how to be a better wife or how to be a better mother or how to be a better worker and all of these things. And I wanted, but we need Christ too. Um, I've explained to, I was talking with one of the pastors back there that I've learned that when you look at scripture, um, when the gospel is presented, the gospel is for everyone. It is male and female, Jew and Gentile, it's for everyone. But God's law sometimes gets specific. Like there's laws specifically for women, and there's laws specifically for men, and there's laws specifically for children, things like that. So sometimes when women gather together and we're like, let's just talk about the stuff for women in the Bible, we're just discussing law, and we're not getting to the gospel. And I found, especially in the older generation, there was a big lack of, of gospel because they had been so ingrained in the law. And so we were talking about that. And so I came up with a course to train older women to train younger in, on how the gospel, we go through Titus 2, how the gospel impacts every area of our life. That, um, that book, through the publishing process, got zoomed out and turned into ragged of how God impacts every area of our life. Um, what I do is I, I have to be as awkward about it as my seven-year-old going up and making friendships and just be like, will you be my friend? Do you wanna hang out? Do you wanna go out for coffee? And then as I practice these spiritual disciplines of confession or Bible reading, to discuss these things together and to share those spiritual friendships to encourage one another my, my pastor calls them discipleship partners, where, where you do that, that we're trying to work on. Um, and it's, it's hard to know whether or not you should try to manufacture that or if it happens organically, but what I do know is that we're all called to it. That's something that we should all be a part of because then you're not alone. And when you're alone, Satan likes to isolate and oppress and being together is, is, um, is part of that good design. That goes along with another question that I got submitted. I'm, I'm trying to find it here. I got them submitted in several different methods. <laughs> it, okay, here, yes. How do I, it kind of goes along with this, how do I be that friend, wife, and mother, or daughter that points others to Christ when it's so awkward? How do we incorporate that Practically, do you have any practical tips for incorporating that into our lives? Yeah, that that's a hard question because it's it's really messy. It depends a lot on the circumstance. I think the best way I can say is with wisdom, asking God for wisdom in that. There are times when I when I am being a friend to someone. Um, where she's sharing her burden with me and I just keep praying the whole time she's talking, Lord, help me to know if I should say something or if I should be silent 
Sometimes being silent is the best thing. Sometimes you really need to say something. Um, but I think when we fix our eyes on Jesus, everything flows out from that. One of the younger women who I met with, I referred to her, um, and she's given me permission to share her stories, though I never give her name. But she got in a place where her husband had kind of an emotional affair with a woman at work, a woman he was very devoted to. And she was really wrestling with how to deal with that. And both she and I came from broken homes with um, adulterous fathers. And we just, she was just ready to leave. She was just like, I can't go through what my mom went through. And I don't know what to tell her what to do because I'm not her, she's not me, and I'm not her authority. But what I did tell her was, um, all I know is that God is with you. He is going to see you through whatever you decide. But whatever you decide, let it not be out of fear. Because God does not give us a spirit of fear. He gives us his faith. And so pointing them of just calling out truth from lies of, okay, the spirit of fear, that, that one's not from Christ. So let's make some other decisions. And, and so what we did is we focused on her relationship with the Lord and got her grounded in how he was for her and how he was with her. And then we got to the point of understanding that forgiveness is not from her. It's from something that God, God is the only one who forgives. And it's just agreeing with that forgiveness. So I think a lot of times it comes from understanding that everything flows from grace. Absolutely everything flows from grace. And, um, and to not be afraid of that because that's where the power is. Grace is where the power is. Um, the law can convict. The law can do a lot of things. The law um, can teach. The law cannot save. Only the gospel can save. And so when we understand that the power's in the gospel, you lead with that. But again, like I said, it's wisdom. Sometimes you have to be quiet and, so, and just pray. And, and other times you can speak up. But I think most people, most people appreciate someone who's honest or someone who won't try to take over their life but just be there with them in their life and hold their hand next to them and say, I have your back. Um, because that's what Christ does for us. He doesn't let us fall. Very good. Okay. Can you talk more, <clears throat> excuse me, about the alternate definition you gave for repent, for repentance? Could you maybe repeat a little bit about it and more about who said it and how they came to that definition? Biblically or any other resources, oh, could I combine that with that? the other one? Um, a little, yeah. Yeah. Did. Okay. So that one was in the ninety-five theses, and then the following um, Heidelberg Disputations. I, I want to say the definition that I got was from Luther's Small Catechism. I know there's other catechisms that would probably have similar definitions. I know there's the New City Catechism, the um, Westminster. I know I was talking with the pastor's wife that she uses the new city with her kids. Um, and so basically it's just, it's those short definitions that are really hard to put together. Um, but I think that's 
overarching a pretty Protestant definition. Okay, so there were a couple questions that dealt with Bible reading. Like, um, where do you recommend starting? What about a new believer who hasn't really ever read the Bible or someone who hasn't read the Bible in a long time? Do you have any practical tips on starting? Yeah, I think a lot of people have different opin opinions on this. Um, I'm in the camp that really thinks that the book of John is a really good place to start for a new believer. It talks about Jesus being God and what that means that he was God and, and what the, um, he was the God from the beginning. It, it just starts out that way. So I, I like starting there. Um, some new believers I've talked with prefer to start in Genesis. If they do prefer that, I, I usually think it's good for them to start alongside with someone so they're not reading confused on their own. That can be very disorienting. Um, when I study the Bible, my favorite way, I mean, I've gone through very, various things. I have gone through reading plans, but with my, my life is very seasonal because of my husband's job. There's seasons where it's really crazy and it's seasons where I have a lot of time. And, and so doing things daily or all the time is just difficult for my family. So, um, when I approach scriptures, I like to pick a book of the Bible that I'm curious about, um, like the book of John or the book of Galatians or something, and I read through it, if possible, in one sitting. And um, just so I can get an overview. Some of the shorter books, it's easier to do that than with one, or like within a week. I'll try to get the book read just straight through. And then I read through it again one more time, but slower and giving myself permission to stop and ask whatever questions I have or stop and memorize a verse because it just really spoke to me and spend the next week just memorizing that verse. Or if I'm just like, well, what does this mean? This doesn't make any sense. Just take the time to, to look up in a commentary or to um, do a, a Greek word study to see what does this actually mean or go to my pastor and say, I'm really stuck on this passage. I have no idea what this is saying. And so I'll read through it once completely and then I'll read through it a second time slowly. And sometimes the slowly takes a month. Sometimes the slowly takes three years, depending on the book and how many questions I have. Um, that's my preferred way to do it because I like to be able to ask the hard questions. And I found with the, the Bible reading is helpful for a lot of people, but I was the ornery child in my family and I just wanna know why, like all the time. And so if I have a Bible reading where I just have to, okay, I have a question I don't understand, but I better move on to the next chapter, that just my whole personality just starts going annoyed at that. And so feeling that that wasn't wrong to, study it that way, I think, I think you kind of have to give yourself freedom. Um, but again, to stick within the context of your church and historic Christianity so we aren't going off the deep end. Yeah. Okay. Any thoughts on how rest and the inter entertainment culture interact for Christians? Any thoughts on how to help children with their interactions with the entertainment culture? Yeah, and again, I can, I can share my approach. I know a lot of people from other families have different approaches. 
Um, yeah, kid, it, I'm seeing a trend in kids that's different. Um, my my college-age daughter and all of her friends have a big aversion to social media. Like it's almost like their parents overshared, and so they're just they don't share as much, and they don't like it to be curated, and they're 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 not on their phones as much. My when TV or screens and all the entertainment and movies become a big deal for kids, they just get like sucked in and addicted to it for a little bit, and then they just never. I mean, rest doesn't mean being like zombie-like, just glazed over. You know, rest is deeper than that. Um, we do a couple of things in our house. The month of June every year we call TV Free June, where we take away a lot of entertainment in our family, and we just, we take away all the screens. And we just, as a family, learn how to just be to just go for a walk and just to reset us for the summer, to start, to start our summer off that way. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of entertainment. I got caught up with another question that you had shown me. The, someone said, how do you rest? Or like, what are my favorite ways to rest? And I think these questions are connected. Um, putting boundaries. Having, having boundaries be a normal thing for your family, like um, TV-free June, or on Sundays, I don't do dishes. We use paper plates on Sundays because I just, <laughs> I don't want to do them, and I don't have to. And, um, and so the Sabbath isn't, rest isn't something I have to do. I get to do it, and you better believe I enjoy getting to do it. And so... Um, so having boundaries on that of work is allowed to come this far, but it's not allowed to come further. I think setting, talking with whoever's in your household about what those lines are. Um, and we've had to do that in our marriage as well because there have been times when I have been homeschooling and have a bunch of little kids and I, um, we had a quiet time with our family every day after after lunch, we sat down for an hour each by ourselves to just not be by other people. Because when you're homeschooling, it's like people all the time. And so we would have that one hour, which always ended up being the hour that my husband came home for lunch and just gave me a bunch of jobs to do. And so just be like, okay, hun, but this is like my one, this is the only hour I'm sitting down today. You know, of just like having those discussions of, of boundaries. It's, it's a discussion, and it's something, um, honestly, a way to love your neighbor, a way that um, your neighbors love you, and understanding, I don't know, there, there's a lot of rest that comes from understanding where our boundaries are. Let me find, okay, I, th I don't think this one will take too long. You use the word sacrament in your book. What is the meaning of the word sacrament? Yeah, so that, that's a Lutheran word. So I come, my background is Lutheran Brethren, which is a more conservative evangelical. There's a big range. I think um, my Baptist friends call them ordinances. And 
Um, again, I tend to think of a lot of church doctrine in a historic sense of when did this start and when did this start and how does, you know, when did this become defined as this? That has helped me sort out the differences between churches. So the Catholic Church had seven sacraments. Martin Luther did two, um, baptism and communion, but he also considered the word preached as a sacrament. So whenever you heard the word, you were hearing the grace of God itself. Um, and he said that because he didn't define it as a sacrament because there was no tangible thing that you could hold with a, like you could with the other. So basically, a sacrament is God's grace connected with a tangible thing. Um, and then with other denominations coming out of Protestantism, they, the word sacrament became a problem for some people because of, of sacred, of maybe being too mystical. And so they called it ordinances of this is something God has asked us to do. And so um, that's merely a difference in denominations where um, understanding is this something we do for God or something God does for us. And so that's, I'm trying to be humble here. Because <laughs> there are so many denominations represented here that I want to give grace and humility for that and just explain what that means to me. I hope that's in a good spot. That, that was good. That was helpful. Thank you. Okay. Um, our church is going through a ser sermon series on the spiritual discipline of generosity. What does that look like for me in such a busy time of life when I can barely take care of the things that I need to get done? Yeah. I mean, that's even like, how do you give money when you're poor so, sort of thing. Um, I think generosity takes a lot of forms. Um, it takes the form of money. It takes the form of time. It, it takes, I think, I think friendship is a form of generosity. Um, I find it ironic that when I have traveled overseas on, you know, various mission trips as a teen or, or things of that nature, um, the poorest people I have met have been the most generous. Like, have you found that to be true too? Um, and I think, I think because the reason that is, is because they know what it's like. They're, they're like, I, I see something in you and I, I see the pain that you're in. I know what it's like. And so I think the spirit of generosity comes from a place of understanding that we are all beggars, everyone. And um, to give grace, grace for the circumstances that people find themselves in. Um, I don't think it's something that is measured as far as like, I don't think it's ever gonna feel like enough. I really don't. I don't think it's ever, I don't think it's ever gonna feel like I've given, you know, even tithing being enough. Like what could we possibly give that could compare to what God has given us. Like, I, I think it's just that lopsided nature of grace that is gonna make you always feel like it's never enough. 
That doesn't mean that that has to be a guilt that you carry around of it's never enough, but a wonder that we carry around of what we do could never be, we could never repay Jesus for what he's done for us. We could never love our neighbor enough to express that. And that's not a guilt thing, that's a reality because his grace is that big. His generosity with us is that huge that it will always humble us and to not be afraid of that humbling because that humbling is is where God puts the gospel. It's where he puts the the grace. Yeah, that's good. I think you just answered another one of the questions was how do you fight guilt when Satan or myself is telling me that I'm not doing enough? I mean, you kind of just, any more thoughts along those, those lines? Call a thing what it is. That's, that's a phrase that, that we use often in our house because often we think things are what we feel. Don't call them what you feel, call them what they are. Um, that's a phrase Martin Luther used, but it's also a lot of theologians have tied that back to Adam naming things. That is what, that's what humans were told to do in the garden is to call things what they are. And when you speak truth into something, that's where Satan is the father of lies. That's where he loses his power. And so I think calling a thing what it is is very helpful there. Okay. Hold on. Let me go through my, my sources here. Okay, you have the book Ragged. Is there anything else or any other publications you're working on? Yeah, I just took a couple months off of speaking because I have a lot coming up. Um, So my next book for adults, like Ragged, is a book on um, patience, which I mean is like a daring thing to write about, right? Like your life is going to fall apart as soon as you want to start study patience. It, it's been something I've been scared of, so I, that I tend to write about what I struggle with. And that has turned into a book talking about the patience of God and what does it mean that God is patient and does God's patience run out. This is, so that is my next work. Um, that I find, it took me a long time to find a publisher for that to, that was willing to help come alongside that. So that book is due in April, so I'm working on that right now. While that was going on, I put out a little children's picture book with the same publisher as Ragged um, on the Fruit of the Spirit. That, um, it's the first children's book that they are putting out and for 1517. And because it was their first book, I asked for a really ruthless editor to really make it the best. And I turned it in in January and she keeps sending it back to me and doing all these writing exercises because writing for kids is actually, on a technical level, very difficult. So that one is hopefully will be to the illustrator soon. While that was going on, uh, Crossway Publishers came to me. Um, I had written an article years ago for a Southern Baptist institution that they asked me to. And um, that the editor I worked with now works at the Gospel Coalition, and he was writing a book for Crossway. And they reached out because they're putting out a series of middle grade readers of Christian biographies. 
and um, it's coming out next fall. So they were looking for a Lutheran woman. <laughs> Their definition that they told me was hilarious. They're like, we were looking for a Lutheran woman who plays nice with the Baptists. And I'm like, okay. Um, I don't know what that means, but okay. And um, so I had worked with them before, and so that, that was fun. But they, that editor is writing a book on Martin Luther, and they wanted me to write book two of this series on Katie Luther, Martin Luther's wife. And so I took a couple months to decide on that and did a bunch of research. And so that book is just turned in. So editor, it is with the, it's with the team over at Crossway now, a book on Katie Luther for like middle school age kids. Probably the most fun project I've ever worked on. I don't consider myself a biographer, but Katie's story ministered to me in ways I was not expecting. And um, I didn't know much about her, so I got to ask all my curious, dumb questions. There's a lot of legends around her, and separating fact from fiction was really difficult. But yeah, so that one's coming out next year, too. So there's three books coming down the pipe pipeline. Great. Great. Um, how do you journal your prayers? Are you vocalizing them? Like, are you praying out loud as you're journaling them? Or are you just writing them down? You want to share a little bit more about how that works for you? Maybe both. Um, I, I pray a lot throughout the day, kind of practicing the presence, as Brother Lauren said. So I, I pray when I'm walking. I tend to go on prayer walks a lot um, just to get myself moving. I'll tell my kids I'm going for a walk outside, and I'll just do laps around our, um, our grain bins. Um, not for the exercise, but just for the brain clarity and prayer time. Um, because my, my watch doesn't even recognize it as an exercise. That's how not an exercise it is. Um, and, but if I am up in the morning and I do get that treasured time with the word and prayer, um, I usually almost always write it out. There was a season um, when my kids were just reaching adolescence that was very difficult for me as a mom because like I had these nice obedient kids and then they weren't and they had all these emotions and all these curveballs and I didn't know what was going on. And so I, I started um, writing out scripture for my kids, putting my names in there, you know, um, Lord, may, may David do this or may Celia know you this way or may Elias do that, you know, and so there was um, and then I had a little notebook for each one of my kids, and every morning I would pray, just it was like two or three pages, but sometimes I would add more verses to them. Um, because I, I, what I found in that practice of writing out the prayers and just coming back to them every day, the same prayers over and over again, I started seeing what God was doing in my kids' lives, where I wasn't looking for it before. I was just looking for their obedience but when I started praying scripture for them, I started seeing, oh, God is, God is answering that prayer. That passage is for them. That it was, yeah. So I, I do a little of everything. I'm, I'm pretty scattered. Like I said, we have a very seasonal life, and so it's always changing. I appreciate that. Okay, I think we have time for one last one before. I, would you just tell us a little bit about how you came to know the Lord? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, I, I grew up in a Christian family. I, I'm one of those Christians who 
I never remember not knowing Jesus. Um, but when I was about five years old, um, I think it, it had deeper meaning for me. My, my dad had left. Um, it was a very, I mean, life just changed. My dad left. Um, there were multiple affairs, lots of abuse. My, my grandparents were missionaries in Japan. So my mom, my mom was a missionary kid. She was born and raised there. And um, so when I was five, when my dad left, my grandparents moved in with us for two years to just kind of help. And my mom went back to school and um, started working. So, I mean, her life changed too. She had actually had a paper route to help pay for our medical insurance. So she got up like at three in the morning did the paper route until seven, and then she went to work until five, and then she went to night school to finish up her degree after that. And so, like, she was gone a lot, too. And so it was my grandparents for those two years. And we, we were the type of family that if the church doors were open, we were there. Like, it was just whatever the activity. You know, there, there's always those families in church where they just show up to everything. So there was a Sunday evening preacher who was just traveling through, and I was sitting in, um, in the service, and I was probably just coloring or something like that. And the preacher said something about God being our father. And he said, you know that God is the perfect father. And, um, and that was very, like, simple for me. Like, I was five. And so I remember thinking about that really deeply because I, I had just lost my dad. And I'm just like, Jesus is, okay, so God is the perfect father. God is the perfect father. And so it was very simple. I went home, and my sister and I went to bed, and my bed was right by the window. And I remember looking out at the stars in the sky, in, you know, outside, and it was a winter day in Colorado. And I remember just very simply telling God and praying to him, saying, God, I don't have a daddy anymore. He, he has moved away. I don't even know when I'm going to see him. But I heard that you're a really good daddy. Could you be mine? And so that, that was how I grew up, where if there was something I would normally bring to my dad, I would just bring that to God. As Things as little as, how am I going to pay for my wedding? How am I going to pay for... Um, how am I going to get through this? Is this the right person? Or how am I going to pay for college? All those things, I would just call God to his promise and say, God, you promised to be my dad, and dads pay for these things. God, you promised to do this, and this is what dads do. So that, that is when my life changed. That way, if that makes sense. Yeah, so. Thank you, Gretchen. I appreciate that. I yeah. wasn't expecting that. I, I appreciate the vulnerability. Okay, we have lunch prepared for you back in the fellowship hall where we went last night for snacks. Um, I just want to thank you, Gretchen, for your time, <clears throat> excuse me, and coming here. And I know it's not easy to leave a large family at home and go away, and I thank you for coming. I thank you for being willing to do that, and I hope that it's been an encouragement for you as well. Okay. Yes. Thank you. All right, I will pray as we close our time here, and I hope you enjoy some time chatting at lunch. Dear Heavenly Father, 
I thank you for this time that we have had. I praise you for what you have done here and the way you've brought all the details together, Lord. I just thank you for your endless love and the ways you show us. There are too many to count, Lord. Um, I pray that Gretchen's words, the things that she has shared with us, will continue to linger in our thoughts, that you will continue to use them in our hearts, that our lives will be changed, that our friendships will be changed, that our relationships with our families and our homes will be changed, that we will draw closer to you and that we will bring you glory, Lord. Thank you for your love and your forgiveness and your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the lunch you've provided and for all the people that have prepared it. In your name we pray, amen.